Father, we declare your faithfulness this morning. You are steadfast in your grace, in your love towards us, in your holiness, in your goodness, in all of your attributes. We declare your faithfulness. Father, we praise you for your faithfulness that has come to us through your Son. We are saved by the gospel. We stand before you this morning clothed in Christ's righteousness, not a righteousness of our own, not one that we have earned, but one that comes from Him by virtue of His perfect life and His death on the cross. Our sins are forgiven and we stand righteous before you. We praise you for your faithfulness in our lives through your Son, Jesus, and we give you thanks. As we come now to your word, as ever, we ask for your help. Strengthen us to receive the truth, to be built up in the truth and to proclaim the truth, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We carry on this morning in our series through the prophet Habakkuk. If you have a Bible, I'd ask you to turn there with me. And our text for this morning is Habakkuk Chapter 2, verses 6 through to 20. Habakkuk 2, verses 6 through to 20. I'll read the entirety of our text. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 6 and following. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high. The reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples you have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord 
as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you. An utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrify them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Thus reads God's word. May he bless it to our hearts this morning. By way of reminder, we have so far covered the first two complaints that Habakkuk the prophet brings to the Lord in chapter 1 and the first few verses of chapter 2. We read of Habakkuk bringing to God two questions, the context being that he lived during a time of great injustice. Habakkuk suffered great evils, wickedness surrounding him, and he, being a righteous man, felt the injustice of those evils acutely. And so Habakkuk is, in a sense, unique amongst the prophets because his book is not so much proclaiming, foretelling, nor forthtelling, Rather, it is complaining. Habakkuk, at least in the early stages of this short book, complains to God, and he asks him, firstly, will you be idle? You'll remember just two weeks ago, we looked at that initial complaint wherein Habakkuk is puzzled that God doesn't seem to be doing anything about the wickedness of the Judites. And there we learned God's response is that he was at work. He didn't ordain the evil, he takes no pleasure in it, but he's at work through it. The second complaint that we considered last week, God has assured Habakkuk that he's at work, and the answer specifically that he was raising up another army, the Babylonians, to deal with the wicked Judites, so that raises in Habakkuk's mind a second question, will you not do what is right? How can you, a holy God, ordain that this army, this nation, such a wicked nation, should be the means by which you punish your people? And again, God answered him by way of inference, saying, I will be vindicated, 
There is nobody on the last day that will be able to say that I have acted unjustly. I will do what is right. But because the outworking of God's righteousness is not according to Habakkuk's schedule, that then raises on our part the need for faith. You remember the answer that God gives Habakkuk is not so much directly in response to his question, but directs his attention to the necessity of faith. All those that would live uprightly, honoring the Lord, must live by faith. And that verse, chapter 2, verse 4, is perhaps the most central verse to all of Habakkuk. What is the overarching message that this prophet receives and then in turn proclaims? It is that the righteous shall live by faith. And we could pause there and simply note that God has spoken sufficiently for Habakkuk to get on with living life in a way that honors his creator. In a sense, we might say the book of Habakkuk could end right there. God does not need to say any more for the prophet to now respond rightly in the midst of a wicked generation. God has adequately responded to Habakkuk so that now he can conduct himself in a manner that honors him. But in his grace, God goes further. In his grace, God goes further and gives more information to this prophet, and that is our text for today, what is often termed these woe oracles. You'll see that leading word five times in the text here, woe to him, woe to him. Five times these woe oracles are a picture of God's judgment as it will be poured out on the last day. God graciously gives Habakkuk this very detailed image of his judgment which is to come. There are no names mentioned here, but the context would infer that these woe oracles are directed towards, first and foremost, the Babylonians. Again, much as we saw last week, the Babylonian army are personified as an individual. Woe to him, speaking collectively against the Babylonian nation. Interestingly, the ones that speak this oracle are those that were victims of the Babylonians. Verse 6, shall not all these take up their taunt against him? Those that suffered the injustices of the Babylonians are the ones that speak these woe oracles as they witness firsthand the judgment of God poured out on this army on the last day. Now, it's highly unlikely that any Babylonian ever heard these oracles. God gave them to Habakkuk, who then would have rehearsed them amongst his own people. They would have been recorded down and passed on. It's unlikely that any Babylonian ever heard these, even though the oracles are directed to them. And that simple observation helps us consider the function of these oracles 
within this book. The function of this portion of Habakkuk is to supplement or to feed, to foster Habakkuk's faith. So last week, God taught Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by faith. There's an implied imperative there to the prophet, have faith, trust in me, depend on me. And then in his grace, he seeks to feed that faith. He seeks to strengthen Habakkuk's faith. How? By giving him a detailed picture of the last day. Much as we see all throughout Scripture, the very, very simple principle that as God's people look forward to what is to come, they are equipped to persevere in the now. It's exactly the same here. Habakkuk is commended to set his gaze toward the final day. And that becomes a means by which he can live by faith in the present. And that really is no different for how we ought to receive this text. Certainly, we don't experience the same levels of violence and injustice that Habakkuk was experiencing. But nevertheless, injustice surrounds us. We all feel the reality of evil within a fallen world. And the question arises for the Christian, how can we persevere? How can we keep living in a manner that honors the Lord? And the answer is live by faith. And that faith is informed by looking forward. Christians should regularly be setting their hearts upon the truths that pertain to the last day of salvation. We should, as a discipline, cast our minds forward in accordance with the Scriptures to consider what that final day of salvation will look like, an enormous day of blessing for those that have lived by faith and for those who have not repented of their sin, for those who have persisted in their wickedness and their own pride, a day of judgment. And so as God gives to us this picture by way of Habakkuk, may our faith be strengthened to persevere today. Now, in tackling the text, rather than work through every specific woe oracle, we might do better to try and tackle the text holistically to step back and observe some prominent features of these verses, specifically the nature of the judgment that God promises. And so our headings for this morning will be the certainty of judgment, the righteousness of judgment, and finally the complement of judgment, the certainty, righteousness, and complement of God's judgment, beginning with its certainty, consider just for a minute how unexpected these verses are within the flow of the book. If you had never heard the book of Habakkuk before, if you had never read it, if you had been one of the original audience around Habakkuk and he stands in the market square and proclaims what God has given to him, you would hear his first complaint and his 
the response that God gives to him. You would hear his second complaint and the response that God gives to him. And then you might expect what we find in chapter 3, that Habakkuk responds in praise. Complaint 1 with its answer, complaint 2 with its answer, form a learning curve for the prophet so that he is now positioned to respond and say, I got it wrong and I praise you. And that's what comes in chapter 3. And so this portion of chapter 2 sits almost like this strange intrusion into the flow of the narrative. It seems somewhat unexpected. And yet, of course, the judgment of which God speaks is by no means unexpected to him. God has planned to judge the wicked Every sin that they have committed, he has recorded and noted. Every injustice that the Babylonians pursued, God recorded, and he understood exactly the time and the manner in which he would judge them. What's more, the emphatic and the persistent nature of these woe oracles speak to the certainty of the judgment that is coming. You see, it's not simply a passing comment within the flow of Habakkuk that God would judge the nations. He doesn't simply offer some passing comment, oh, and by the way, there might just come a day when I decide to judge them. No, he gives many, many verses in an emphatic manner detailing the punishment that is coming because of their wickedness. Five times, woe to him. Woe to him, woe to those wicked Babylonians. The word woe there has this idea of lamenting. It is, if you like, an instruction to the Babylonians. You should be grieving and lamenting because punishment is coming your way. The certainty of this punishment is inherent to its emphatic nature. You see now how this portion of the text provides the declarative and the final response to the question with which Habakkuk led this book. He began in chapter 1 by saying, How long, O Lord? Will you be idle? Why aren't you doing anything? And God's response was, I am working even now. And here we come to understand the supplement to that answer, the final declaration, I will most certainly be at work on the last day. Will God be idle by no means? He's at work now amidst a crooked generation, and He will judge finally and ultimately on the last day. And this is to give Habakkuk Faith, this is to bolster his confidence. The certainty of God's judgment is to bolster his confidence in God in the present day. It's no different for us either. God would have us consider the reality of his judgment of the wicked on the last day as a means by which we persevere. Now, if you think about that for just a moment, it perhaps is surprising to you. This is a 
biblical truth that is not thought upon all that often, certainly as we observe texts in the Bible that lift our eyes off of the here and now and project our vision towards that final horizon of salvation history, many of them do so in a positive manner. Consider on the last day that your sins will be finally, finally rid from your weary soul. Consider on the last day you will stand before Christ and see Him face to face. Consider on that last day how your communion with God will be made full. So many positive truths that we tend to think of as it relates to the end of salvation history, we tend not to think upon the negative realities that pertain to that day, specifically the judgment of the wicked. But it is a biblical truth that we should think about both the positive and the negative realities of that day, the final salvation of his saints and the judgment of the wicked, and both should function for us as a means by which we persevere. I think one of the reasons that perhaps we struggle to embrace the truth of the judgment of the wicked as a means by which we should be encouraged One of the reasons we struggle with that is because we have foremost in our minds New Testament verses that speak about our obligation to pray for our enemies, to love our enemies, to turn the other cheek. All of these New Testament obligations that rest on your shoulders this morning in so much as you are a follower of Christ. And as we think upon those verses, we can tend to believe that there is some kind of theological tension, tension between our responsibility in the here and now towards the wicked and the encouragement that the Scriptures would seem to want us to draw from the the reality of their judgment. But to be perfectly clear, there is absolutely no tension between those two ideas. The Bible is not at odds with itself. The Scriptures are not inconsistent. In the here and now, on an interpersonal level, absolutely, we should be praying for our enemies. We should be turning the other cheek daily. We should show love towards our enemies, asking God that He would save them. And at the same time, we should take much comfort in the reality that on the very last day, all those who have not turned from their sin and cast themselves upon Christ will suffer for their sins. The wicked will not ultimately prosper. And God's people are to draw strength from that truth. Now, that then, of course, leads to the question of where you stand this morning. You understand that it is not that the righteous are counted as so on the last day because of the good works that they've done. It is not that anybody escapes the judgment of God by trying harder to do what pleases Him. 
the theology of the gospel informs us that those whom God withholds His wrath from are only those that have put their faith in Christ. On the last day, all the wicked will be judged. Who, who are those wicked? We read the sins of the Babylonians and we could be tempted to think it is only those in society who have really pursued sin and evil as a way of life. And certainly it's not the case that those who are counted amongst the wicked will necessarily have pursued to the same degree the wickedness that we see here in Habakkuk 2. But you understand that any sin... Any sin is worthy of an eternity of punishment because it is fundamentally a sin against an infinitely holy God. The smallest of sins is worthy of an eternity of punishment because of the one against whom you have sinned. So any sin committed is worthy of the judgment that we see portrayed in Habakkuk chapter 2 because it is committed against an infinitely holy God. And the only possible means of being counted amongst the righteous on that last day is through faith in Christ. It's an acceptance of the fact that you have sinned, and it is a simple acceptance of the fact that Jesus has made a payment for your sin. Believe on Christ that He has made a payment for your sin, and you are now counted amongst the righteous. You are now no longer counted amongst the wicked, not because of anything that you have done, but because of what Christ has done. And the wonderful truth is that as you put your faith in Christ, then God begins to work in your life so that you do indeed evidence the righteousness that He desires. And I would encourage you, if you are here this morning, having never put your faith in Christ, to consider the reality of that last day. None of us know when it will come. You don't know when you'll stand before God, but the truth of God's Word is that the wicked will be judged. Consider the truth of that last day and the possibility that you may not be counted amongst the wicked. The means that God has provided for you to be counted amongst the righteous. Namely, faith in the death of His Son. Now, with that, we can move on to consider the righteousness of God's judgment. Having looked at the certainty of the judgment, now look at the righteousness of it, the fairness of it, the appropriateness of His judgment. You see just how detailed God has been in giving Habakkuk a list of the wicked sins of the Babylonians. He says, verse 6, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. He loads himself with pledges. There was a pledge system that would have been practiced in ancient Israel. If I owe you something, I give you a pledge as an indication that I intend to pay my debt. When the debt is paid, the pledge gets returned 
Most likely here, God is referring to the Babylonians' practice of coming in and taking all that is before them as if it were a pledge indicative of a debt to be paid. But of course, there was no debt. They were just behaving as prideful conquerors, taking everything in front of them. It becomes something of an abuse of the pledge system. It is an expression of their prideful ambition. Then he moves on to consider another sin in chapter, in verse 9. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house. He set his nest on high to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited their life. The Babylonians pursuing this building project of great cities and great towns in their own strength, showing no care for others, a sin of evil gain. The third woe oracle in verse 12, woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. They would have set their captives to work in order to do their work for them. The captives undoubtedly would have died from exhaustion, building the towns and cities for the Babylonians. And so here, the sin of cruelty or you might say unethical living The fourth woe oracle in verse 15, woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and you make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. Very simply, the sin of debauchery. Taking advantage of people with much drink in order to delight themselves. And then the fifth and final woe oracle is plain, verse 18, what profit is an idol? Its maker has shaped it. Its maker trusts in his own creation. The Babylonians were guilty of idolatry. God sees every sin. There's no sin that escapes God's view. He records them all. He causes Habakkuk to rehearse them all. And then notice the specificity with which God responds to them. God responds to the sins of the Babylonians in exact accordance with the crime committed. You see, God is just, He is fair, He is upright. He punishes the sin in accordance with its nature. He doesn't fall short in His punishment, nor does He go beyond what is deserved. And so the woe oracles of Habakkuk 2 form this cause-effect relationship. You see in verse 7, will not your debtors suddenly arise? Then you will be spoiled for them. He's playing off of the sin listed in verse 6 of them taking and taking and taking. Well, your debtors are going to arise and you'll become the spoil. Or in verse 11, the stones will cry out from the wall. The beams of the woodwork will respond. You caused them. You built this city for your own gain, and now it's going to come back upon you. Verse 14, you built these towns in iniquity, but there is a city that will be established on the last day that will overrule all of your evil. 
Verse 16, you made your neighbors drink, you made them drunk so as to take advantage of them. Verse 16, you will have your fill of shame. You will drink the cup of the Lord's right hand, that is the cup of His judgment. Your sins are visited upon you. And then finally, verse 20, you have worshipped idols, but the Lord in His holy temple will have vengeance and you'll be made silent in that day. You see how all the way through each of these woe oracles, God is responding to their sin in exact accordance with the wickedness they committed. His judgment on that last day is entirely correct. He doesn't fall short of punishing the wicked, nor does he go beyond. He exacts exactly the punishment that is deserved by the sin. And so again, we find another declarative and final response to the question that Habakkuk has already asked. He began asking, will you be idle? And God responds and says, I will not. And notice on the last day, I will most definitely act. He then moved on and said, will you do what is right? And God said, I will do what is right, but you will see my name vindicated on the last day. And in these woe oracles, as the prophet is made to look forward to that final act of judgment, we see the righteousness of God. We see the holiness of God evidenced in the fairness of His judgment. As Christians, we're to take much comfort from this. The righteousness of God's judgment is to be a strength to us. As you look around and you see much wickedness in society, as you look around and you see much unfairness, you see the evil seemingly prosper, we're to take comfort and strength in the knowledge that not only will God repay their sins upon them, He will visit their evil upon their heads, but He will do so in exact accordance with their wickedness. There is no sin that has escaped God's view. And he will be righteous and show himself to be righteous on the last day. And again, appealing to the gospel, the wonderful reality is that as Christians, we sit here this morning with every single sin having been accounted for. There is no sin that you've committed that God hasn't seen. And yet at the cross, every single trespass has been paid for. So then that leaves us to consider finally the complement to God's judgment. We've looked at the certainty of His judgment and the righteousness of His judgment. What about its complement? And by this, I mean the other side of the coin, what else is happening on that fearful day of God's judgment? And perhaps there is no verse that more clearly expounds the glorious truth of that day than Habakkuk 2.14. 
What happens when God's judgment is revealed and poured out on the wicked at the same time the earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea? If Habakkuk 2.4 is maybe the central verse to Habakkuk's message, 2.14 comes quickly behind it. The righteous shall live by faith. Set your faith in the Lord and understand this, that on the very last day, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now, there is much that we could say about that one single idea. It requires some unpacking. Notice, first of all, the extensive nature of this knowledge. The earth will be filled. There is not one corner of this globe that will not know the glory of the Lord. There is not one square mile where the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will not abound. It will be the defining feature of every single corner of God's creation. The defining feature will be a knowledge of the glory of the Lord. The earth will be filled. The knowledge of which Habakkuk speaks here is not simply an academic knowledge, but it is a relational knowledge. It's interesting to note that just about every time the Old Testament employs that verb to know, it does so in a relational sense. It is not saying that the wicked will be present and they, like the righteous, will know something in their minds of the glory of the Lord. That is not the thought communicated. But rather, those present will relationally know of the glory of the Lord. It infers a trust and a love and a confidence and a communion with God centered around His glory. By implication, it means the wicked won't be present. If the whole earth is full of this knowledge, it means there is no place left for the wicked. They've been banished. They don't get to be here anymore. The whole earth is filled with those who have been counted as righteous because of their faith in the Lord. And the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will fill the earth. How? As the waters cover the sea. Now, maybe you've heard that phrase spoken many times. There are other portions of Scripture that pick up on this concept of the waters covering the sea. But your familiarity with that phrase shouldn't stop you from seeing just how abstract it is. What does it mean that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea, water upon water? As I've sought to explain this verse on previous occasions, I've used an illustration from my time in the military, and normally, as I explain it, there's no one there present who has any familiarity of what it is to be submerged on a submarine, and I know that may not be the case this morning. As we found out last week, there are many, many here serving or connected to the military, and there may even be some amongst us today who, to earn their paycheck, go deep down under the waters. 
I served for seven years in the Royal Navy, and that time was in the submarine service. And occasionally, as we went to sea, one of the exercises that we would do is what we refer to as a deep dive. There was nobody that enjoyed it, but it had to be done. We'd be pressure testing the submarine. So you take that thing really, really deep, and when you deep dive a submarine, there are certain things that happen. The leak rate at certain hatches increases. You see more drips coming in. Strange noises start to be heard as the submarine groans under the pressure that's experienced at that depth. And on the smaller submarines, there would be a visible squeezing of the boat. Certain distances would, be get, would get noticeably shorter as the submarine was pressured by the water above it. The point is, you don't have to go that deep down before you start to see what it means for the waters to cover the sea. There is an immense pressure experienced as you go down in the ocean and you feel the weight of water above you. It bears down on anything below it. The pressure experienced when you submerge yourself and you go down is quite remarkable. And I have no doubt that Habakkuk did not have first-hand experience of being on a submarine. But nevertheless, the point would have been clear as he spoke about a day that was coming when the knowledge of the glory of the Lord would cover the earth. How? As the waters cover the sea. The point is it would be bearing down on all of creation. All of creation would know the glory of the Lord intimately intensively, not in a half-hearted, casual manner. On this last day, it is not possible to be half-hearted about the things of the Lord, not in an oppressive manner, but everyone joyfully partaking in an experience of God's glory as the waters cover the sea. For those that have lived by faith, this is the fruition of their faith. For those that have lived by faith, this is their reward. Now, as I said, there are other texts in the Bible that pick up on this idea of the glory of God covering the whole earth. We heard from one of them this morning in our scripture reading, Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet sees the glory of the Lord and the seraphim sing how his glory has covered the earth and the response from Isaiah is to say, woe is me. He looks forward to see the glory of the Lord cover the earth and his response in the here and now is to acknowledge his sin. And that is but one implication that comes to us this morning. As we set our minds on the future reality of God's judgment, the judgment of the wicked, 
as we take comfort in the gospel by which we are saved and we anticipate that wonderful day when His glory will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea, the practical outworking of such a hope must be to strive ever more to live in accordance with His Word. We live in accordance with His commands not to earn His favor. We have it in Christ. But we live in accordance with His commands to honor Him. Out of gratitude for the salvation we have received, waiting for that day when the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Pray with me now to close. Father, we give you thanks for these difficult verses that we read of in Habakkuk. Woe to the nations. Woe to the Babylonians. Woe to the wicked. We would often be prone to pass over such verses, struggling to see how they might be of value to us, and yet we see you gave them to the prophet as a means to strengthen his faith. Father, I do pray that they would strengthen our faith this morning. Teach us to look forward to that final day of salvation history to take great comfort in the wonderful truths that we think often upon that we'll stand before Christ, that there will be no sin left in us on that day, that our communion with you will be made complete, but also to take comfort in the truth that you will deal with every sin, you will deal with every sinner who has persisted in their wickedness and never turned to Christ for salvation. Father, teach us to draw strength from the reality that in that day you will punish the wicked. Every injustice that we see around us today will be dealt with. It will be dealt with in exact accordance with the sin that was committed. Your judgment is certain, and it is righteous. And Father, teach us to draw strength from the glorious compliment that comes with that day of vengeance, the compliment being that the whole earth will be full of your glory, a knowledge of your glory. Every square mile of this planet will be characterized by an enjoyment of your glory as the waters cover the sea. That is our hope. That will be our glorious reward. May we draw strength from these truths today. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand with me for the benediction? Now may the God who will honor His name, 
who will vindicate his character on the last day. Be honored in your lives. Amen. Amen.